Welcome to the Healthy Family Project by Produce for Kids, covering the hot topics in the world of health, food, and family with a dose of fun. Welcome to the Healthy Family Project. I'm your host, Amanda. Today, I have a guest host, my colleague, Trish James. She'll be talking to the author of her favorite book, How to Raise an Adult, by Julie Lithcott Hames. Before I turn it over to Trish, just a few updates for all of you. If you haven't already, be sure to join our Facebook group. Simply search Healthy Family Project on Facebook and I'll be able to approve you to join the group. We had a lot of great summer content over on our Instagram and website, healthyfamilyproject.com. Find out how to not use your oven because it's really hot out and we'd like to not do that. (laughs) Um, But still deliver a healthy, delicious meal for your family and also find ways to take advantage of all the in-season fruits and vegetables out there right now, along with, you know, regular content that we're putting out weekly recipes and, and tips for the family. We do have an e-newsletter that goes out weekly. If you'd like all of our weekly content delivered in one spot, you can sign up for the show notes in the show notes or on the website. So without further ado, I will turn you over to Trish for today's episode. Hello, everyone. I am Trish James, and I am a team member over at the Healthy Family Project. You may have heard me on one of our episodes back in October when we discussed food allergies and the impact they have on families. Well, today I am guest hosting because we have a very special guest joining us on a subject that is near and dear to me. So Amanda was gracious enough to pass the microphone on over. Today we are talking to Julie lithcock Hames. Julie believes in humans and is deeply interested in what gets in their way. She's the New York Times bestselling author of the anti-helicopter parenting manifesto, How to Raise an Adult, which gave rise to a TED Talk that has more than 5 million views. Her second book is the critically acclaimed and award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American, which illustrates her experience as a Black and biracial person in a white space. Her most recent book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, is an inspirational work aiming to help humans lead a more authentic adulthood. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her partner of over 30 years, their itinerant young adults, and her mother. Please join me in welcoming Julie to the Healthy Family Project. Hi, Julie. I really, really appreciate you joining us today. Um, I actually first heard you speak in 2017. Um, My friend and I, we were at the women's conference in Pennsylvania and we heard you speak and we immediately bought your book. Um, at the time, my little, my guys were, were younger. She had like a two or three year old and um, it's just really great to, to hear you and to, to talk to you today. I'm so excited for you to join us. So thank you very much. Trish, thank you so much for having me. You're making me chuckle because I remember that Pennsylvania Women's Conference. It was October 2017 Mm -hmm. and my new book, my memoir on race had come out that day. It was publication day. And so I was feeling just very um, excited and just in that zone of like, wow, something new is entering the world and I hope it does well. And, um, yes. and, uh, I really, of course, the Pennsylvania, the, the, the conferences for women are an amazing organization mm-hmm. and it was just a lot of great energy that day. So I'm glad you were there and glad it to be was. here. It was. Yes. Yes. Thank you. So what was your inspiration for the book? You talk about it a little bit in the book, but what was really your inspiration, uh, when writing the book? For how to raise an adult. Yes. I was a dean on the campus at Stanford University. Um, I was observing how childhood had changed. Uh, From the late 90s 
through the 2000s, we saw an increase in the number of parents who were basically showing up on campus to behave for their student or to do things for their student, Mm. um, evincing no confidence that their student could handle the basic stuff. I mean, register for classes, talk to faculty when they had concerns, sort out run-of-the-mill problems, navigate a bureaucracy, just the stuff of life that prior generations of college students had managed to handle more or less, not perfectly. It's never Mm -hmm. about perfection, but it's life is, is learned you, you learn how to live life by living life as opposed to by having life handled for you. Right. So I was seeing too much handling and I grew concerned because I could also see that students weren't uh, very confident about their ability to handle stuff. So, uh, and they were relieved when their parents got involved. And I thought, hey, wait a minute, long-term, what's going to happen? What if these kids, quote unquote, don't ever learn? Mm. Um, what's going to become of them? What's going to become of our society? Right. A whole generation can't hashtag adult, which is a term, of course, millennials begin using. So it was really an empathy for young adults who seemed, although highly academically um, achieving, they seemed underbaked when it came to their uh, how to navigate my way through life kind of skills. So that's why I wrote that first book. Right, exactly. And um, I love that term, underbaked. I am currently baking my own children. I love that. I love that term. Um, So one of the things you kind of, throughout the book, you know, you go talk about the little ones, you talk about, you know, middle schoolers, and then you talk about young adults going from high school to college. And again, when I first read the book, my little ones um, were, were, they're they're not little anymore. My big ones were little then. And I was definitely a helicopter parent. I mean, I was told I was a helicopter parent. I wore that badge very proudly. And then I started to realize like, "Mm, this really isn't working. And I could see the boys really trying to pull away. And I was trying to, you know, go after it even more. So, but one of the things that you talk about is why we do it is that like, we're so scared, you know, the dangers of outside or, you know, people picking up kids and, um, you know, get them getting hurt. And so you really talk about how we need to get back to when we were little and we were just, see ya and go outside and we'll see, you know, we'll see you at lunchtime. Um, so why isn't that important to you? And then to follow up, do you have any advice and tips for moms and dads who are trying to not be helicopter parents, especially when they're little? Absolutely. So, The first thing I want your listeners to know is I have kids. My kids are now 21 and 19. And I saw a problem on my university campus, as I explained. And and it wasn't a Stanford problem. It was an American problem Mm -hmm. that I happened to notice at Stanford. But deans and faculty across the country at all different types of colleges and universities were seeing the same thing. Parents who seem to feel a need to do for their kids because maybe their kids couldn't do for themselves. Um, So... I'm, I'm this, this dean working with other people's kids, but then it turns out, even though I'm railing against the over-involvement at college, I come to this very mortifying realization some years into this that I too am a helicopter parent, mm-hmm. that I, though I can rail against it when I see it in other people's 18 and 20-year-olds, mm-hmm. I'm doing it with my 8 and 10-year-old. And my aha moment was, came home from work one day, sat down for dinner, sat next to my 10-year-old. We were having chicken that night and I leaned over his plate and began cutting his meat. Yeah. It's a perfect (laughs) example, right? We we, want to be helpful. 
we want to be safe. We want to be efficient. So of course we can cut the neat the meat safely because we're the grown up, mm-hmm. and of course we can do it quickly because we're the grown up, right? Right. And we can make it all happen. Why? Because we're the grown up. So my point is that was my aha. Oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to let go of this kid with any confidence in either his brain or mind that he can do for himself when he leaves our home at 18, because I'm cutting the meat of a 10 year old. And I realize there's every single life skill has to be taught. First, we do it for them. Mm. But at some point they do it themselves. And there's this process, two steps in between there, where we teach them and watch them and, and we all develop confidence that they can do it. So I want your listeners to know, I am not this author pointing fingers at helicopter parents or slash I am yet I'm pointing the finger largely at myself and saying, please learn from my mistakes Mm -hmm. because I've seen the, how it plays out. So, um, of course, we're afraid. Of course, we love them. And yet, if you just take parenting out of this moment, like I need to ensure right now that everything is fine and take the long view, which is I'm going to be dead one day and need mm. to know, and my kid needs to know that they've got it, that they know how to use good judgment about crossing the street, about how to behave in a store or a mall, that they know how to navigate the bureaucracy of a school or a job situation, that they know how to fill out forms and track their own deadlines and apologize for their own mistakes, right? They, we, we are metaphorically carrying them on our shoulders through life as if they are still infants who are helpless. Mm-hmm. And then if you expect that you can set somebody down and just plop them on the ground and expect them to be able to do all of these things, you're really in for a rude awakening. They won't be able to, and that's on us. So it's, it's about that long-term, my job as a parent is to put myself out of a job to develop pride in that, not to have pride. And I do everything for my kids. I handle everything. When they forget something, I drop everything and show up at their Mm -hmm. school, the forgotten homework or the forgotten sporting equipment. That's not good parenting. If it's an emergency, yes, do it. Okay. But you're supposed to say, oh, sorry, buddy, that sucks. You know, yeah. uh, how do you Bummer. think you're going to handle that? Bummer. You know, that's yeah. how a 10 year old can solve. I love you so much, you know, instead of doing everything for them, we're, that's to parent for the long term to help the kid learn. This is my life. I am responsible. I can learn. And guess what? When they do learn how to do things, whether it's a life skill like cooking a grilled cheese sandwich on the stove or crossing the street, or when they do learn, hey, I, you know, I forgot my backpack. My teacher said, all right, you better remember tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, I remembered the next day because it didn't feel good when I had forgotten. Right. That's how they learn and grow. And that's what we're supposed to be delighting in. Instead of doing everything for them, we're supposed to delight in them constantly acquiring more and more skills because that leads to competence then confidence and their mental health right. is, mm-hmm. is really shored up by, I can do things, I can bounce back when things go badly. Okay, we are undermining their mental health by doing everything for them and right. by setting the path to make sure there aren't any bumps or blips. So it's really about a short-term perspective, um, which looks like overparenting works and appreciating long-term. It doesn't work. It leads to disastrous outcomes. Right, yeah. It's so interesting because, you know, at Healthy Family Project, we really work hard to talk about keep getting kids in the kitchen and helping them cook, you know, cook and be part of that process. And so I was really good at that. My kids that were in the kitchen. But when you talked about the backpack, 
every single time my kids forgot something, you know, I'd run to their school and I would get so mad. I'm like, why? Like, why can't you remember? Well, because they didn't have to remember. That's right. That's right. exactly right. Yep. Right. Let me just give you that quick four-step method because whether yep. it's um, crossing the street or making a meal, um, we go from doing it for them to one day they can do it. But the steps in between that are missing are, okay, so it's first you do it for them. Uh, p- picture your kid is trying to cross, learning to, you know, you're, you're crossing the street. Mm-hmm. First you do it for them. You're holding them on your shoulder. They don't have to think. They just get carried. Step two, you do it with them. You stand at the curb. You hold their hand. You announce, hey, buddy, we're going to start to learn to practice crossing the street. Mm-hmm. It's going to take time. Here's how we do it. And you use your teaching voice, which is slow and compassionate. You talk about looking left and right and left. You're teaching your kid where to look and how to wait till they know it's safe. You do step two enough times, holding their hand, narrating out loud, where you can get to step three, where you show up at the curb this day and say, hey, baby, hey, kid, whatever your language Mm -hmm. is, hey, I'm going to, it's your turn now. I'm still here just in case. I want to hear you think it through. I want to hear you analyze whether it's okay to cross and you let go of their hand. You know, they're not going to dart out into the street. They've passed that point. Right. And you hear your little one say, okay, I look left and right and left. And you have to say, okay, buckaroo, slow down. <laughs> you have to actually look and be sure. And you're teaching. None of this can happen if we're so busy that we can't take the time to teach. Of course, it's more efficient for you to snatch your kid up in your arms mm-hmm. and run across the street. But they'll never learn. Right. Step three enough times that you and they can have confidence. They know how to cross the street. That's step four. That's the four-step method. It's on my yeah. website. Yeah, that's wonderful. I really appreciate that. And, you know, a lot of times I will implement that here at home, especially when, as they're older and they have to, you know, communicate with adults or, you know, get, get involved. Um, Hey, hey, I, you know, I don't know what I'm, this year was Zoom, you know, and virtual school, and they had to build their confidence to be able to communicate with teachers when they weren't there face to face. And so my husband and I did, we said, okay, here, this is what, this is what you do first. And then the next time, you know, we'll sit here and watch you. And now they communicate with their teachers independently. And we don't, you know, we don't really even need to be getting involved. And so that's always it's, it makes us proud. I mean, it's a little nervous, right? Because you don't know what they're saying in the email. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I really appreciate that step. So my youngest right now, he's in sixth grade um, or going into sixth grade. I'm sorry. My husband teaches sixth grade and he always says that, you know, this is a transition year. They come in as elementary students and they leave as these middle school kids, these, you know, teenagers. And um, it's really hard, I think, as a mom to this is the time where I have the hardest let, time letting go because I still picture them as an elementary student, even though their teachers know that they're a middle school student. So do you have any um, advice on how parents can let go a little bit during this time with um, have, you know, as they're going into middle school out without being overly involved in, in every aspect of their of their day? So my caveat here is I've never been a middle school teacher. I was a college <laughs> dean, right? I saw a problem at the college level and I've tried to dial backwards and show what childhood mm-hmm. will look like in order to have college students who can. So um, with that said, of course, I'm full of opinions. Um, here's here's the, the visual metaphor I want every parent to hang on to. And I think it works very well for the transition from elementary to middle and middle to high mm-hmm. and high what's after. Um, 
Remember when they were learning to walk. Remember when your kid, roughly age one, was learning to stand up and then take those first steps. What did they do? They failed. They fell down and they struggled and got back up. And you didn't try to intervene. Yeah. You, you applauded. You didn't get embarrassed. You didn't yell. You didn't, you know, fix it for them. To fix it for them would have been you on your knees behind your kid with your two fingers under the right armpit and two fingers under the left armpit, you know, holding them up basically with your yeah. hands under their armpits and nudging them forward. So it appeared from the front that they were walking, but you wouldn't have done that because you know, intuitively they're not walking. I'm walking for them. If they fall, they're sinking into my body. I'm propping them up. That's helicopter parenting. Mm. We didn't do it when they learned to walk. When parents ask me, how do I give my kid? When do I start to give my kid more independence? When do I start to let go? Mm. I say, why did you stop letting go? Because that's what you were capable of when they were learning to walk or picture the visual of when they learned to ride a bike. Mm -hmm. You could only hold on to that seat for so long yep. and trust in the faith of like humans being capable of learning to balance, deal right. with gravity, right? <laughs> and that they were, you know, and they might fall and that's yep. how they learn. Yep. So parenting comes with wincing. Parenting comes Ooh, with, oh, that's a good one. Yes. Right? Yes. Necessary. You obviously, you don't want them to bike off into a four lane highway. You know, they should be practicing on a safe road. That's your job. Set the context in which the skill can be learned. Mm. And then back away, when your one-year-old is learning to walk, you make sure that there aren't any glass objects that are pointy that they're going to fall on and impale mm -hmm. their brain with, right? You make sure the living room or the family room or wherever they're learning is set up so that it's a fairly soft environment. When they fall, they will fall. They need to fall. You make sure the environment won't harm them when they do fall. The delight that kid feels when they pick themselves back up and keep going, the smile on their face, the strength in those little chubby thighs and in that core only develops yep. when we let them. So take that now to middle school. What is the skill? Uh, a middle schooler, I think, should be able to get themselves to school. If you're dropping them off, do not walk them into school any longer, barring significant special needs. Like your job is done when you, if, if you drive them to school, you know, say goodbye at the car. The kid should be going into school. The mm -hmm. kid is responsible for making sure their backpack is there. If they forgot it, you smile and say, I'm so sorry, buddy. I can't bring it, you know, but, mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, what can you do to resolve the problem? You right. start critical thinking. You say, you know, that sounds like, uh, you know, you're frustrated. You empathize. It's called empathize and empower, right? Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry that happened. How do you think you're going to handle it, buddy? Maybe the best way for them to handle it is simply an email to their teacher saying, I'm so sorry I left my backpack at, at school if they left it behind. Or right, right, right. they get to school and they say, you don't go into the teacher and say, we were so busy this morning, we forgot our backpack. No, it's not your backpack. Mm. Stop using we when you mean your son, your daughter, your child, right? <laughs> Stop being the one. Say to your kid, okay, you're going to need to explain to your teacher what happened. I'm sure, you know, I have confidence that you can handle this. You say that with a smile. You don't act all alarmed. That conveys to the kid, my mom or my parent believes in me. I can do this. It might be tough, but I'm believed in. I'm being rooted for. That's it. Mm. And then you are going to need to call a friend and say, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible. Right. No, you're not a terrible mom. You're <laughs> actually teaching your kid to do for themselves. Now, if this was the recital, if it's the, end of sixth grade, seventh grade, big bloody blah symphony. I don't know. You know, there's a, mm -hmm. there's an instrument that the kid left behind and they've been practicing for months. That's not the day to say too bad. So sad. Right. You know, right. that's the day to bring it. Right. Same with waking your kid up. 
There are people waking their college students up, Trish. Yeah, that's tough. Okay? You don't want to be teaching. No, you don't like want to be doing that. Well before <laughs> high school, yep. they should be waking themselves up. Yep. If they can't wake themselves up, that is a problem. It may mean they're not sleeping enough. That is a problem. Mm-hmm. That's that a good point. Yeah, you didn't think about that. Okay, let's not let the system undermine our kids' sleep. Let's not be our kids' alarm clock. And let me make a point here that privileged families can rescue their kids. Families that have a parental figure who can drop everything to bring the forgotten item are families of privilege. If you're working class, your boss isn't going to let you take time off to go. Okay, so these practices that, frankly, schools should not allow um, are privileging the already privileged Mm. Um, in that the kid gets this, the problem solved. Of course, long-term, the poor and working class kids have more grit, have more skill. Right. They've had right. to do more for themselves. So in right. the long it, I think in some ways it does even itself out. The overprivileged kids can't do anything for themselves. You know, that I, I'm rooting for everybody to have more accountability, more responsibility. It actually ultimately feels good inside the kid to know, I took care of business, I handled it, mm-hmm. my teacher's proud of me, I feel good. When we overhelp, we undermine their sense of I can, and that leads to depression. It leads to anxiety. So we've just absolutely got to pull back. Yeah. No, that's a really, that's so interesting that you said that because um, when I, when they were younger, I started working from home and I really did have the ability like to just stop what I'm doing and run it over because it really wasn't a big deal. But then what happened was I was starting to get busier or I had a meeting and then I'd be like, no, you know, I'm sorry, I can't. And it was a crisis. And I'm like, oh no, no. So see, I set this expectation that I was on call for you. I'm not on call for you. Yeah. That's right. right. That's absolutely right. And again, you're not being mean. You're not being obnoxious. It isn't that authoritarian mean parent right? with a smile I've got a job. School is your job. You've Mm -hmm. got to take care of your responsibilities. I've got to take care of mine. I love you so much. If something goes wrong, I want you to think through how you're going to figure it out. And sometimes the the figuring it out is simply a note of apology to whomever, right? Right. Right. That's a great point. And I do like the, um, you know, if it's an emergency or if it's a band recital or something that is extraordinary, then yes, that's when we're going to help because we are your parents and we're not going to have your back. We're not going to abandon you. This isn't about that. This is about teaching you. We have to step back enough so that you can learn the lessons of life. Mm -hmm. We're there for the just in case so that you don't drown or walk into traffic and so on. Okay. So if a kid is a habitual, doesn't wake themselves up and you're trying to instill that, you've got to be comfortable with if they oversleep, they're going to miss school. Mm -hmm. Okay. You have to let that happen. Now, in some communities, they can just walk to school and walk late. In some communities, uh, if, if they can't, if they might be biking to school, but if, if they're relying on you to drive them, you should not drop everything. Right. You should say, okay, I'm in the, I'm in a meeting right now, or I can't, Mm -hmm. I, you need to wake yourself up. You need to get up on time. Let me know if you need help setting an alarm more effectively, but you know, this is, you're saying we all matter here and I've got things going on and you know, I'm not, not your concierge. And, um, uh, but if it's a big test that they're right. sleeping through, if it's like the day of the SAT and right. your <laughs> has overslept, that's not the day to teach that lesson because of I won't wake you up because that would be a very cruel, mm-hmm. sort of blown response. Yes, no, I agree to one hundred percent. And I'm, I'm, 
mentally taking notes because my my high schooler and I think the transition from virtual school to in-person school, um, that, that was a transition because he could just walk down the stairs, you know, in his pajamas to take virtual school. And now he actually has to get up. And so it took it took a while. And I finally said to him, like, the the bus leaves the bus me <laughs> leaves at seven ten and if you are not in the car you are walking because I have I have stuff to do I have to get to work you know so and you have to honor that and that's yes. what's hard yes first that is hard days, it shouldn't take more than a couple of times but it'll be hard yeah and you have to just say to yourself I know I'm doing the right thing I'm teaching him to do for himself right. and that is the most loving thing. Right. No, I'm 100%. So when I first read this book, again, it was four years ago, they were seven and 11 at the time. Um, And I, you know, I did, I read the book, but the college stuff and the high school stuff, I really didn't, um, I didn't take it to heart then, let's just say, but now I have a freshman rising sophomore. And so I I read it, reread the book a couple of weeks ago and I'm, it's like a new set of eyes because um, I'm seeing all of this stuff kind of come to fruition when it comes to classes and transcripts and making sure you have, you're on the right path and college tours. And it's very overwhelming. But in the book, you talk a lot about the college arms race and um, it's, it's really challenging. So what advice do you have for parents like me who like I, in theory, like I get it, everything you say in your book about the college arms race I completely agree. And that selection process, but you also see your kid having to navigate this that sometimes is not fair or sometimes can be really challenging. So how, help me out with this. (laughs) Um, So college um, is a great way to spend four years. Not everyone has to go, but increasingly a college degree is required if you're to have a decent job. So a college degree is today what a high school degree was when I was coming up and I'm 53. Mm. So a lot has changed. So um, college is important uh, uh, for, you know, many people will, will choose that option. A highly selective college is not important. Right. Many of us are really, really overly stressed about my kid has to get to this particular brand name school or set of brand name schools. And out of some wildly overblown misinformation about what matters in life. Okay. You do successful, happy people mostly didn't go to brand name schools. Some of them did. Some of them didn't Mm -hmm. go to college at all. Okay. So read Frank Bruni's book, Where You Go is Not Who You'll Be for some reassurance about how it's not the school. It's who the kid is wherever they end up. Okay. So you want to be nurturing your high school student toward like encouraging them toward which subjects light them up. They are required to take Mm. a bunch of subjects. They love hopefully at least one, maybe a bunch they hate some others, okay? They don't have to be great at everything. I believe in strengthening your kids' strengths. Mm-hmm. One of my kids is a hyper-focused science kid, and he took every single science class at the school, which were many, in many, many elective science classes. And uh, there were plenty of other things he paid very little attention to mm-hmm. because that wasn't his love. Right. Not trying to shape your kid to look like some college dean wants them to look. You're trying to help your kid become their best version of themselves, to lean into the things they love and to take more and more of those things because those are the indicators of who they are and what they might want to do with their lives. Mm. So, um, so 
helping your kid become who they are rather than manufacturing them to look how some particular college wants them to be. Um, Family time is essential. Downtime is essential. Um, Sleep is essential. So they should not have a course of study that is um, minimalizing those other things that matter in life. If you are in a school district, your kid is in a school district that feels toxic around these measures, you might have to have a soul searching family conversation and say, is this the right school for us? Mm. You know, is, are we really all thriving and flourishing if, um, you know, if there's this much stress, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if the system feels overly stressful, you got to get out of the system. Okay. Or you've got to stand up in the face of that system and say, these choices are not for us and for our family. We're opting for other things. Mm. Um, okay. And have confidence that there is a college out there that will be delighted to have right. you. Right. Right. Okay? Exactly. There are so many there, are, there. This is a, a nation with 3,000 um, p- public and private four year universities and colleges. And that means the top 5% is 150 schools. If you get a book that lists 200, 225 schools, right. mm-hmm. they're all top 10 percent okay of all the schools in america so um which is you know there are also great schools in canada and great schools in the uk and you know great schools in other countries and often more affordable in these other places so do your homework around what you know would be a good fit for your kid encourage your kid ultimately needs to lead that process when we drag our kids through the process because we feel like we're on a treadmill and we have to and the kid's not ready that's a sign the kid's not going to thrive in college. So take mm. a, have your kid take a gap year and explore, you know, themselves and meaningful work and what have you. Let them go to college when they are ready to engage the process. There are better lists than U.S. News. I recommend colleges that change lives. I recommend right. Alumni Factor. I recommend the Fisk Guide to Colleges. All of these are going to open your eyes wider to the possibilities. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I encourage people to just stop you know, all of the elite brand name stuff, it's just, it's really getting in the way of what's the right fit for any particular kid. Right. Exactly. And that's so interesting. And, um, I will link all those, um, all those resources in the show notes, but one of the things you talk about in the book is how, you know, it's kind of pay to pay to play in some of those, um, books or some of those magazines or some of those publications. And so it's not really, you're not getting the full picture. And so, you know, you're looking at this magazine of the top 200 colleges, but it doesn't, it doesn't really necessarily mean anything to your student. You know, it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a good fit just because they're on that top 200 list. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I will tell you, I'm reading the book that completely, uh, I guess, got me hooked um, into your philosophy and what you were talking about in the book, you made this correlation between over, and you referenced it earlier in our conversation, this correlation between overparenting and negatively impacting um, kids' confidence, which then in turn leads to depression um, and mental health um, issues in young adults, especially when they go to college and they look around and they're like, oh gosh, I can't go to the drugstore by myself or I can't, I don't know how to do X, Y, and Z, but other people know how, what the heck's wrong with me? And so um, can you talk a little bit about that, what you observed uh, as, a, as a dean? Yeah. Um, so my background is law and higher education. I've not, I'm not a psychologist, but in writing How to Raise an Adult, I uh, look to the field of psychology for evidence, if there was any, um, of a correlation between being overparented and, and underprepared and, and um, 
experiencing psychological difficulties and, and the evidence was starting to come in. And so I cite that in the chapter on, um, on how we're, we're harming our kids. Mm -hmm. They've been psychologically harmed is the name of the chapter. Um, what's happening is when, when a person, um, overhandles another person, person A overhandles person B, person B psychologically isn't allowed to develop their own sense of their own existence. It's called agency or self-efficacy. These are related terms in the field of psychology, as I understand it. And um, it develops, we develop agency, a sense of I can do things by doing things. And by seeing that when we mm. act, when we did something, there was a result. That's how our psyche learns, okay, I'm, I'm here, I'm capable, I can do things by doing things. And if we are deprived in developing agency and self-efficacy, if we don't develop that healthy sense of I can and I can cope when things don't go my way, that can lead to this feeling of helplessness, which then leads to anxiety sometimes, mm -hmm. um, extreme worry um, and fear of everything and um, depression, the sense of, you know, a, a, a really low mood. Um, so there's research that says that that correlates these parenting behaviors with greater rates of anxiety and depression and lower executive function in kids. Um, we think we're helping. And as I've said at the outset, it does appear to help in the short term because we mm -hmm. rescued them in that moment. We took care of it. But in the long term, we've really failed them because yep. they haven't developed the the mindset and the, let alone the skills that a healthy functioning human needs to have. Right. Right. I will tell you that that was the most important takeaway that I had of the book um, and yeah. really shapes how I move forward with, with my parenting. So now your new book, let's, let's turn the page to your new book. I am loving it. It's actually, um, I'm giving it away as graduation presents this year because um, it's just, it's awesome. And I love the PDFs that come along with it. So you can have conversations. It's, it's really great. But the, and, and I related so much when you said, uh, you know, I'm looking at something's happening. I look around the room and I'm like, who's the adult? Oh, th right. That's me. <laughs> I'm <Right>. the adult. <laughs> so I right. think we can all relate to that. So why did you write this book? Why, uh, you know, about adulting? Yeah. Um, because a generation millennials have been saying for quite some time, I don't want to adult. I don't know how to mm. adult. It's scary. And I see the correlation between overparenting and young adults feeling like I can't, I don't want to, it's scary. I'm not saying every young adult who's struggling to launch was overparented, but certainly some have been. And so this is me very compassionately saying, yep, I get it. You're afraid. That's valid. It seems daunting. Yep, I get it. And you know what? I think you can. I believe in you. I want to be this older person with this book who's turning around from my older vantage point and shining a warm light onto readers, mm -hmm. to illuminate what to think about, what to watch out for, what to, to keep in mind, all of that stuff. And so um, this is me rooting for all of us to make it, which is sort of my meta thing, what I'm about. I'm trying to be here to support all humans in thriving and young adults who don't feel like they can effectively adult is a major problem for that person, but also systemically, societally. So um, it's a very blunt book. It's very, it is. Bright. I love it. I love um, the voice. I, I'm actually, I listen to it. I love your voice yeah. and everything. <laughs> I'm glad. And what I'm loving Trish is that older people. So it's pitched for 18 mm -hmm. to 34 year olds, but I'm hearing from people who are in their later 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even saying, this book is also for me. Yeah. That makes sense because 
there isn't anything magical about adulting. It's simply you survive childhood, you're an adult, boom. You go from being more or less the responsibility of someone else to being more or less responsible for yourself. Mm -hmm. That's the distinction. So of course, everybody from 18, 20, 25 on is in that space of more or less I'm responsible for myself. And the book is effectively a mirror that shows each reader at their particular age and stage, mm-hmm. what they need to see about themselves. Yeah, that's a, that's really great. You're right. Because, uh, so I'm 42 and I was listening to it and I was like, Oh, this is really, you know, some parts really was you're exactly right. Reflected back to me. I'm like, Oh, okay. Maybe I need to, <laughs> Maybe we need to take a look at this again, you know, but it's, it's really, it's a great book. And I think it's going to be, um, I really wish that I had it 20 years ago and I, I'm not kidding you. I have, um, I have them ordered and their graduation gifts this year. So I think it's really good, really great, um, great topic. So I'm, I'm a little curious because you wrote both of these books pre 2020 and pre COVID. If you were going to rewrite anything, what would be different? What did the past year, how did it impact parenting? How did it impact adulting? What do you think that the impact of 2020 had? I actually wrote the second book during COVID. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, then there you go. <laughs> yeah, I had only written a little bit of it and then the pandemic hit. And so I finished that book um, during a pandemic. I wrote probably two thirds of it during a pandemic. Mm. And so I had to weave in um, reference to it and it became this very meta thing. You'll, you know, when you get to the later chapters on how to cope when the, you know, what hits the fan, Mm -hmm. you'll see me say, you know, I thought this chapter was going to be about death and disease. And now I'm writing it amid a pandemic and Mm -hmm. I am struggling and, um, but I'm going to do my best to take care of myself and write this book, which is in many ways an encapsulation of the advice in this chapter, like how to cope. You sort of look after yourself and you, you try to keep going. And um, so it got very meta. Um, I think, um, resilience is is really a, a core theme at the heart of both books. Parents in How to Raise an Adult, you've got to back off enough so that your kids can experience some of the challenges of life, which strengthen them, make them mm. resilient. And in your turn, um, in many chapters, I'm talking about, you know, how you basically handle, you know, and cope when, when whether it's a disaster or it's a disappointment, um, it's kind of taking stock of what happened and learning from it and keeping on going. So um, in some ways, I think these books are both um, are, are both really championing resilience. And um, I guess the one thing that I would say that probably isn't in the book, because I didn't yet know it when I had to stop, I stopped writing the book. I was done with it in October, 2020, um, is the lessons that we can take mm-hmm. from struggle. A little bit of that in the book, but I would probably lean into that more and say, look, yes, this was a disaster. Yes, it was terrifying. Yes, many of us lost people. We lost income. We lost a sense of, you know, normalcy, all of that. Yes, bad things happened. And what we need to do is look back on what we did manage. What the gifts were. Maybe we're proud. Like I finished this class. It was online. It was terrible, but I did it. I'm proud of myself. Or I looked after my younger siblings because my parents were so busy. I feel good about that. Or I managed to check in with my elderly relative because they were so isolated or whatever it is you can say, despite this or within this context of challenge, I took care of this, that, and the other, that helps fortify us. It, it is us telling ourselves, Hey, Good job, actually. This was terrible, and we still managed. And we to do still survived. Mm-hmm. That informs us for next time in 2022 or 2025, whenever the next thing comes, because stuff will always go wrong. 
you know, life is chaotic, life is out of our control, we'll then be able to say, oh, well, during the pandemic, you know what, I managed to do this, that, and the other. That will inform our future self of how to be strong in the face of the next challenge. We are literally laying down the pattern for our, or or the, the building blocks for right. our future resilience. Right. I love that. I do think, you know, especially I saw it from my youngest, um, with being virtual school, he had to be an advocate for himself because I was working. My husband was working. My other son was like, we were all on our little, our spaces and our own spaces. And he had to be an advocate for himself. And we, uh, my husband and I were talking, we said, you know, that would have came, but certainly it came quicker. Because yeah. so it was one of the gifts of speaking up and getting through it. And yeah, this isn't fun, but guess what? We have to, you know, we have to kind of do, you know, be resilient, just like you said. And I think that that's one, definitely one of the gifts um, of 2020 and, and COVID. Absolutely. For sure. Let well, I, one thing, just one thing. Mm-hmm, we have to kind of more slack. And that is, I think, another Oh, lesson. I like that too. Right? Be able to say whether it's a kid or a teacher or a parent or a coworker, we got to be able to say, you didn't fail. It was a pandemic. Mm. It wasn't your fault. We had a lot of systemic failures. There are a lot of people saying kids lost a year, kids yes. lost a year and a half. And some kids were actually lost due to systemic failures related to socioeconomic. Mm-hmm. St- you know, poor folks, working class folks didn't have Wi-Fi, didn't have devices. A lot of, I'm hearing so many, we've all been hearing about the kids who've been lost. Yes. But let us not put that on them. They didn't oh, absolutely fail them, right? And then we say to those kids, let's talk about what you did manage to do, even though school was a disaster for right. you. You know, so right. to reframe it as um as this systemic stuff happened that wasn't the failure of an individual or the failure of a family, but rather the failure of a system that had not predicted um, right. that we would all need to go online and do work in school online and that everyone in America needed Wi-Fi. Right. You know, right. those systems were not in place and are still not in place. Um, and, um, so we need to cut ourselves slack as individuals when, when stuff well outside of our control goes wrong, it's not our fault. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. And I think that it's, you know, just getting, and also getting through it, you know, under dealing with all that, dealing with the complications, dealing with things, not working, not having everything that you need to have, not having all that stuff, um, you know, looking at it as, Hey, I, I did it in spite of this, or I got through this in spite of this. I think that's important too. Very important. So uh, one last question before uh, we, we leave, and this is the question we ask all of our guests. Um, so how, what does a healthy family look like to you? I take a lot of my um, lessons from Bill Stixrud, Ned Johnson. They wrote the self-driven child um, Micheline Duclef, who wrote Hunt, Gather, Parent. These are other people in the parenting space whom I really um, have such high regard for. Um, Jess Leahy, who wrote The Gift of Failure. Um, I, To me, a healthy family is, um, is one where, first of all, there's unconditional love, mm-hmm. where everybody knows they're loved. And they learn that because they're spoken to in a loving, kind way. They're not praised only when they get the right grades or scores, but they're cherished for existing. Often we parents are so, oh, you did this. Oh, you did that. I love you so much. I'm so proud. We need to be showing up in our kids' lives saying, hey, how are you? It's great Mm -hmm. to see. How was your day? Not how was your day? What happened on the science test? But like, how was your day? How are you feeling? You know, what's good about today? 
Do you need help with anything? Just this gentle kindness that is, that is unconditional love. Um, and so that's number one. When you have unconditional love, almost everything else works. Um, and then it's one where everybody pitches in, everybody contributes. Chores build a sense of belonging to the family. McLean Duclef has written about this. It builds a sense of family membership when kids are invited to participate in the work of the house, not just sort of treated like uh, little academic automatons that just need to work on their academics and, and we just take care of all the business of, of life in the house. They need to be invited to cook. They need to be invited to clean and participate and, and mend and fix. Mm-hmm. That helps build a sense of belonging to the family. It then provides a sense of you're accountable, you're responsible. It builds work ethic. That's going to make them more successful out in the world of work and the world of college. And so, as I say in my TED Talk, it all boils down to chores and love. And um, everything else, in my view, is, is secondary. Mm, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And, and you definitely get that through through your books too. So um, I definitely appreciate that. So um, again, thank you so much for chatting with us today. I am so just so happy to be able to talk to you. Um, like I said, you certainly have made an impact on my family and many others, I am sure. Um, as we close out, is there anything that you can tell the listeners where they can find you and where they can connect with you? Absolutely, Trish. Thanks. And thanks to everyone who's listened. Um, I'm on social at J. Lithcott Hames. That's my first initial last name, no hyphen. Everywhere uh, you're on social, I'm probably there too. Not TikTok yet, but maybe one day. My <laughs> website is a way to learn a little bit more about my work. That's julielithcotthames.com, no hyphen. Um, so yeah, check out my work. Um, I love to try to connect on social with folks who follow me. Uh, so please, please do that if you feel... Um, and the urge to do so, I'll be there. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. And we will put those links again in the show notes along with your website, uh, your TED Talk, and, and, and also links to the books too so that you can, our listeners can go ahead and purchase them. Well, thank you so much, Julie. I really, really appreciate it and have a great afternoon. Thanks, Trish. You too. Thanks to everyone thank who you. listened. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. I will be back as your host for the next episode. If you like Healthy Family Project, tell a friend and leave us a rating. It will only help our visibility so we can continue to create a healthier generation. You can find Healthy Family Project on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. Talk soon. (laughs) 